Well, good morning. Today, as Ted mentioned, we come to the end of this series on the Gospel of Mark. And I came to Christ in college while I was reading this Gospel, while I was reading Mark. So I feel like I'm sort of saying goodbye to an old friend as we conclude this series. I'm really looking forward to our series on Psalms. Next Sunday, I'll be in Psalm 63, one of my favorites about this intense passion that the follower of Jesus Christ today, this side of the cross, has for the God of the universe. Uh, But today, because this past Good Friday and, and Easter, we went to the death or the crucifixion of Christ at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and then the resurrection in Mark, we are going to conclude this series short of the death and resurrection by looking at a couple of events Uh, that take place in the final hours of Jesus' life just prior to the crucifixion. So turn with me in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or grab a Bible in, in front of you. If you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those Bibles in the racks in front of you and turn to Mark chapter 14 and verse 27. What we're going to do is look at the story of Peter primarily, but we're going to notice this account goes back and forth between Peter and Jesus. Peter and Jesus. So let's start verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, and here Jesus quotes the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, what I want you to notice is that Mark is going to shift now in the following verses and focus on Jesus. He moves from Peter to Jesus, Jesus in Gethsemane. But we're going to skip down and pick up the story of Peter as it continues to unfold. So pick it up in verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not... (coughs) Keep watch for one hour, watch and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now Jesus goes away, Jesus prays, Jesus comes back, he goes away actually and prays two more times, and Peter and the others are still sleeping. Now in the next couple of paragraphs that begin in verse 43, Mark skips over to Jesus again. And we have the record of Jesus being uh, betrayed by Judas, Jesus being arrested by the Jewish authorities. But we want to pick it up (coughs) in verse 30. Excuse me, I got something in my throat. (coughs) We want to go down to verse 53. I think I'm okay, Joe. I don't think I'm going to die just yet. So we're going to skip down to verse 53. So we are back with Peter. So the shifting continues to take place. Then they took Jesus to the high priests and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Let me just say parenthetically, the high priest was Caiaphas. 
Archaeologists have discovered the high Caiaphas's house and kind of uh, Mount of Olives, uh, southern Jerusalem. And, and when I took a group of people from Whitten Bible Church to Israel just about six weeks ago, we, and this was for my first time, we actually got to be in the ruins of Caiaphas's house where Jesus would have been tried. In, in, in the basement of the house, there's a dungeon, a jail. There's actually a place where they think Jesus was held. You can see where his hands were held. All all interesting, all still there uh, 2,000 years later. This is Caiaphas' house, which was his uh, jail, which was the court, which was a lot of things. Verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Now, we have a shift, and the shift is back to Jesus. And we're going to read this because there's a couple things I want you to note here. This is the beginning of Jesus' trials. And here Jesus is standing before the high priest and the Jewish uh, leaders with this Jewish trial. So verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements, well, they did not agree. Then some stood and gave him false testimony, or gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made my man. And even their testimony did not agree. Jesus had not said that in that way. Then the high priest, Caiaphas, stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Now Caiaphas is stuck. What am I going to do? So he decides to force Jesus' hand. And the high priest asks him, are you the Christ? And now here he is asking, are you the Messiah? And he's thinking human Messiah. He's not asking Jesus if he's God. He's asking, are you the Old Testament prophesied anointed one, the son of David, this Messiah? Because the Jewish, only the Jews had a human view of the coming Messiah, the son of the blessed one. And look at verse 62. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. What have you, you have heard the blasphemy, what do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then they began to spit at him, they blindfolded him, they struck him with their fists and said, prophecy, and the guards took him and beat him. Now, not surprising, what does Mark do next? He shifts back to Peter. So from Peter to Jesus, Jesus to Peter, back and forth. Let's pick it up in verse 66. We have this infamous account of Peter's denial. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him closely. You were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow was one of him. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter, or said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. 
and he broke down and he wept. All right, so this section is a a little sophisticated. It's a little complicated because instead of one continuous story, what Mark is doing is he's going back and forth between Peter and Jesus, Jesus and Peter. And we need to ask the question, why? Why does Mark do that? And the answer seems to be because he's drawing a contrast, a contrast between the self protection of Peter and the self-surrender of Jesus. Between the disobedience of Peter and the obedience of Jesus, between the denial of Peter and Jesus' boldness and submission, Mark is going back and forth because he wants us to understand the difference between failure, Peter, success, Jesus, when it comes to being a faithful witness of Christ under pressure. And a lot of pressure here. And Mark is asking you, which are you? Self-protective? Self-surrendering? In other words, what Mark is telling us is Jesus Christ isn't the only one on trial here. Peter's on trial, although Peter just doesn't know it. And the point Mark is making isn't Don't be like Peter, be like Jesus. It's not ultimately a moralistic message. Uh, The point Mark is making is if Peter, the number one disciple, the the leader of the leaders, uh, the future leader of the early church in Jerusalem, can't be faithful if he denies Christ, so will you. And it's only in Jesus that you can be faithful, only in Jesus. So what I want to do is unpack some of this, not all of this, and I want to spend most of our time focusing on Peter and the dynamics here with Peter and what we can learn. And then I'll conclude by looking briefly at a couple, one statement really relative to Jesus. So let's go back to verse 29. And what I want to do is sort of dissect the anatomy of Peter's fall, his spiritual, his moral fall. And I want you to see here in verse 29, it begins with overconfidence. Peter's overconfidence. Peter makes this bold, arrogant statement, I'm better than those guys. Everyone else, Jesus may fall away, but I won't. Now, never mind that Jesus has just said everyone was going to fall away. Peter, in effect, is telling Jesus he's wrong. Have you ever told God he's wrong? I mean, don't we do that a lot sort of functionally? When we say, man, I shouldn't be going through this. I shouldn't have to put up with him or her or this or that. I should be happy. I should feel differently. God, the thing you have me going through, well, God, frankly, you're handling this wrong. You're wrong. That's Peter here. I don't deserve this. I'm better. And that's born in overconfidence. It's born in arrogance. And one of the ways you can tell when you're proud is if you think you're better than the people around you. 
If you think you don't deserve what you're going through. All Peter, all here in verse 29. Now let's go on to verse 37. Notice we move from Peter's overconfidence to Peter's lack of focus. Here Peter is unfocused. And he sleeps through uh, this moment of tremendous agony for Jesus in, in Gethsemane. And so Jesus returns and says, Peter, wake up. Be alert, watch and pray. I need you to be praying for me, Peter. And Jesus is saying, Peter, get focused. Peter, this is the time to be game on. Peter, I need you to be intense. I need you to keep the main thing the main thing. And Peter sleeps. Each and every time, Peter's asleep here. Now let's go to verse 54. Let's continue. So we started with Peter's overconfidence. We see Peter's uh, inability to focus. And now what I want you to see is Peter's distant, that he is distant from Jesus. We read in verse 54, underline this, he followed Jesus from a what? From a distance. And think about that. Now, to Peter's credit, on the uh, one hand, everybody else has fled. All the other disciples, man, they're gone. They're long gone. They're uh, shopping at Target. Peter is the only follower of Christ left. But he's following Jesus from a distance, what he thinks is a safe distance. And the reality is there is no safe distance from Jesus. And when you follow Christ from a distance, it's just a matter of time until you're not really following Christ at all and you deny him. Now, uh, let me press pause because I happen to believe God wants to speak to, to a few of you maybe right here, right now. Because some of you are just like Peter at this point. Uh, you're not necessarily even aware of it, but, but the reality is you're overconfident, man. Uh, you're arrogant about your, your, your spiritual life. Uh, you tell yourself, I'm saved. It doesn't matter. Uh, God's going to take care of me. Or, or you tend to think, you know, I, I, I'm better than a lot of these other people around me. And along the way, you've become distracted. You've lost your spiritual focus. You're not spiritually intense. Uh, maybe it's work. Maybe it's your kids. Uh, maybe it's just a busyness, the pace of your life, but you're too busy for Jesus. You're too busy uh, for the people of God. You're too busy for the, the church. And so what has happened? Well, now you're following Jesus from a distance. And Jesus does not seem real to you. And when you stop and think about it, you, you realize it. But the problem is you don't stop and think about it. And I want to say at this point, man, be careful, be careful, because distance leads to denial, and denial leads to death. So let's look at this denial. Jump down to verse 66, where we have the record of this horrific threefold denial of Jesus by Peter. Now, never mind that Jesus, in the previous account we just read, has just boldly affirmed his deity and his mission 
before the high priest, the most potent leader in Israel. Here, Peter denies Jesus before a powerless servant girl. All sorts of contrasts going on here. But it gets worse. Peter not only denies Jesus the first time, he denies Jesus the second time. Then he denies Jesus the third time. And when we come to verse 71, we read he calls down curses. That phrase comes from the Greek word uh, we get our English word anathema from. It's anathematize. And it's not calling down curses on himself. Peter isn't calling down curses on him. The verbal form won't allow that. That's why the NIV, the recent translation of the NIV, corrected itself here. Peter is cursing Jesus. Swearing at Jesus. In order to prove he isn't a disciple. And I I, I want to suggest to you, we have an incredible picture here of our human tendency, even as followers of Christ, to self-protection. That's what's going on here with Peter. It's all about self-protection. A a, a picture of not only self-protection, but also a picture of self-deception. And so then the rooster crows a, a, a second time. The reality of a sin overwhelms Peter, and, and Peter breaks down and weeps. So it started with overconfidence, um, led to um, a, a lack of focus, it led to distance, and it results in this denial. Now I want to make three observations about this with Peter, these different verses. And the first is, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us after Judas betrayed Christ. I'm talking about Judas, not Peter. After Judas betrayed Christ, Judas also felt bad. Judas had remorse. Just like Peter has remorse here at the end of this section in verse 72. But we need to understand there's a major difference, a huge difference between remorse or feeling bad about what you have done and repentance. Repentance in the Bible is turning around. It's it's literally changing your mind, changing your thinking, changing the direction of your life so it doesn't happen again. Judas had remorse but not repentance. So Judas ends up committing suicide. Peter has remorse, but his remorse leads to repentance, and he totally changes. Now, it's never enough to just feel bad about what you've done, the mess you've made. Repentance is bringing your sin to God, confessing it, owning it, and then clinging to God's grace that he might empower you, he might help you to turn from it. It's rebuilding your life based on the word of God, by the the, the grace of God. Now, I say this because all of us have regrets. Uh, You have regrets. I have a lot of regrets. There isn't a single person in this room that doesn't have regrets. 
But regrets, while they're ugly, are not insurmountable. And while some of them are awful, they're not unforgivable. And the key to recovery from a a fall is remorse that leads to repentance. It's the difference between Judas and Peter. The second thing Marx wants us to understand is that you don't, you do not have to be in a courtroom to be on trial. Daily, regular life is a trial here. Uh, For Peter, uh, uh, the trial was being on the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, where he had been, what, hundreds of times? Or around a common fire. His trial took place around a common fire. You see, it's, it's normal life. It's work, uh, where we work, where we play, where we live. Uh, it, it's at home. It's in the variety of different things we do. It, it, it's ordinary life, regular daily life, where our faith gets tested, where we find ourselves on trial. Will we stand up for Christ? Will we speak up for Christ? Will we um, identify as a, a follower of Christ? Or will we just go along with the crowd and uh, swear and curse and deny Christ? Peter had no idea that he was on trial. Observation number three, the third thing I want you to see here, and this is just a beautiful thing. I'm going to take some time on this. In the hands of Jesus, in the precious hands of Jesus, in the hands of our precious Jesus, your greatest failures become opportunities for your greatest strengths, your greatest blessings, your greatest growth. Now, most scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark is a record of the eyewitness account of Peter. This is Peter's story of his experiences with Jesus. Now, why do they say that? They say that for a number of different reasons. One is that Mark talks about Peter more than any of the other Gospels. And we have amazing details in this short Gospel, this brief Gospel, like the statement in verse 66. Look at verse 66 again, that Peter was in the courtyard below, which could only come from Peter. And points to this gospel, uh, not just being oral tradition, but an oral history of an eyewitness, namely Peter. But the greatest piece of evidence for this being an eyewitness account uh, of Peter is this denial. This story we just read. Why? Because Peter will become the number one leader in the church, the the father of the er, er, early church in in Jerusalem, the influential guy. And this culture, like all cultures in the first century world, was predominantly what we call an honor and shame culture, where reputation was everything. And it's inconceivable that the weakness of the number one leader of a brand new, fragile, countercultural religious movement would be exposed like this unless the leader wanted it to be. Even Peter's friends, his fellow Christians, wouldn't do this 
In an honor and shame culture where reputation uh, was what life made life go around, unless Peter had authorized this, unless Peter had included this. Now what that means, others have pointed this out as well, that this denial here in Mark, and Mark is arguably the earliest of the four Gospels, proves not only that this is an eyewitness account, but it also proves that Jesus completely and totally changed Peter from a self-protective coward to a courageous evangelist. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. And because it is here, we see what Peter was like before he repented. Uh, we get a hint of the change uh, that is coming in this incredible church leader. And I want you to note, Peter didn't hide his dirt. Oh, I'm not going to talk about that. Man, he, he, he got it out. I'm not recommending everybody does this. Don't misunderstand. But he got it out there for the whole world to see. Because this dirt in this particular case, according to the sovereignty of God, both points to the authenticity of the gospel of Mark and it points to his coming transformation to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. So when we go to the end of the uh, gospel of, of John, John chapter 21, and Jesus is in the process of restoring Peter officially to ministry, and because Peter has denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked Peter the question three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Peter, uh, do you love me? And we find uh, Peter saying, you know, Lord, I'm not going to say I'm, I love you more than anybody else anymore. I'm done with that. But I am going to say, man, I love you. I just love you, Jesus. Yes. I love you, Jesus. And then in, in John chapter 21, uh, Jesus goes on and says, okay, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, lead my church. Peter, you are going to be the man to get this movement by the Spirit of God off the ground. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is taking the greatest failure in the church And turning him in to its greatest leader. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying, bring your dirt to me. Your failure, your weakness, your denial, your overconfidence, your distance, your distractibility, whatever. Uh, uh, bring, it, bring it to me. And let me transform your, your, your great uh, weaknesses into kingdom strengths because that's why I went to the cross. In other words, what we have here when we put all of this story of Peter together is that we see Jesus resurrects weakness. Sin, dysfunction. Jesus delights in, in, in changing it and in, in transforming it and turning it into our, some of our greatest strengths. Because you know what failure does? Man, failure gives you a humility that the other people around you don't have. Failure gives you a wisdom and an insight. Man, I've been there. I've done that. I, I, I blew that. That the people around you don't know. Failure gives you a peace, a settledness, a, a self-forgetfulness, and a, 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 a joy 
that only comes by the spirit of the living God because you know how bad it is apart from the grace of God. You and I tend to hide our failures. We tend to hide our weaknesses. We tend to ignore them. We tend to put them in closets and bar the door. If the story of Peter means anything, we bring him into the light and we bring him to Jesus and we let Jesus transform the, transform them. The greatest weakness becomes the greatest leader. Incredible. Incredible picture of grace. Incredible picture of what Jesus wants to do in each of our lives. Now this is important because some of you feel you are permanently stuck on plan B. That you are permanently a bystander in the church or the kingdom of God because along the way you really blew it. And it's just not true. Peter would have never been Peter without this scar. Now, that doesn't mean we should all get up and deny Jesus. Peter wouldn't say that. But it does mean when you come to Jesus Christ by faith and embrace his forgiveness and his acceptance and his love and his grace, you will never, ever be put on plan B because it's not up to you, it's up to Jesus. And there is no plan B in the kingdom of God. God uses everything, I I mean everything, in ways we can't comprehend for his good and for his glory. And you have no reason to wallow in the past. You have no reason to beat yourself up. You have no reason to live a life of regrets or self-pity if you know Jesus. If you've come to Christ, the good news of the gospel isn't that suddenly you're going to wake up and be perfect. The good news of the gospel is suddenly you have been completely and totally forgiven. And we live in light of that grace. And we focus not on what we must do, but what Jesus has done. Grace has crucified guilt for the believer. It was nailed to the cross. And frankly, if you feel guilty, the reason you feel guilty is because you're trying to be your own savior. You're in some convoluted way trying to merit God's approval. Peter did not spend the rest of his life beating himself up, trying to merit God's approval. He lived in grace. And I want to say to you this morning, grace means in the hands of Jesus Christ, your greatest failures become opportunities to become your greatest strengths. As Jesus works in your life. Incredible. So that's Peter. Let me move on and and quickly, I want you to see one verse that gets at our amazing Jesus Christ. Look at verse 62. The high priest has just asked, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And he goes on and says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. That is a reference to to Jesus' deity. He's going back to, that's a mix of 
uh, uh, Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, verse 1. Again, we talked about that psalm. It's actually quoted by Jesus just a couple chapters earlier in Mark. And, and Jesus goes to that psalm uh, to prove um, that he is not only the Messiah, but he is way more than the type of Messiah they thought because he will ultimately be at the right hand of God. He will be in the presence of God, experiencing the power of God. And the Jews knew that a human could never do that. That is a claim to deity. And then Jesus goes on in verse 62 and says, and you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. The cloud, not the clouds of earth, the clouds of heaven, the Shekinah glory uh, of heaven coming to earth. And that's a reference to Jesus' second coming, his second coming in judgment. And so here Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7, which is about the coming judgment of God on this planet. So in other words, what's going on, and this is absolutely incredible, that Jesus is saying the one being judged is in fact the judge of the universe. Not a human Messiah, as the high priest thought, but fully divine. And Jesus' statement in verse 62 creates this explosion. The high priest rips his clothes. Everybody starts to spit on Jesus. They start to hit Jesus. And suddenly the temperature goes to like uh, 202 in the room. There's this country western song. I've, uh, I, I've heard it on the radio about I'm in Daytona. It's 92 degrees in Daytona, but I want to give with her. The temperature between us goes up to 102. You know, that's what love does. Increase of 10 degrees always. Here, it is hot. What? 202. Now, why does Jesus talk like this? Why does Jesus say even though I'm being judged, I am the judge. You will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Because he's in a courtroom. Because he's on trial. C.S. Lewis said, God in the dock. And, and, and Jesus is amazing here. So while Jesus is the divine judge, he is allowing himself to be judged, not to expose sin, but to bear it. Sin is substituting yourself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for your sin. Jesus is the infinite divine judge of the universe. That's the point of verse 62. And he's allowing himself to die as our substitute. So in verse 62, Jesus is saying a couple things. He's saying, I'm fully God. Saying, I'm the Messiah. Then he says, I'm fully God. And I, I am the coming judge. And, and I will allow myself to be judged, even though one day I will judge the world. And, and for right now, I want you to know, I'm dying for you. Dying for you. Amazing. Uh, 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 just Amazing. You know, if there is no divine judge in the universe, 
there's no answer to evil. Things are just going to get worse, and there's no ultimate accountability, and evil ultimately doesn't matter if there's no divine judge. But if there is a divine judge, there is no hope for us. Because we have failed. Jesus alone is the right kind of judge who was willing to be judged for sin he did not commit in order to extend grace to people who do not deserve it. Uh, John Stott years ago once said, I, I could have never believed in Christianity without the cross. Could have never believed in Christianity without the cross. Because in a world filled with injustice, it's impossible to believe in a God who would be immune to it. Justice evil all around us. How could I believe in a God that is immune, impervious uh, uh, to it? Christianity is the only religion in the world, only religion in all of history, where God experienced injustice. And it's going on here in verse 62. I'm the judge. I will be judged. And by the way, this is why we as followers of Christ give ourselves to identifying with the powerless. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's identifying with the powerless. It's why our ministry in Pointe, our ministry in Turkana, our, our refugee resettlement ministry, why it, it matters so much. Because Jesus did not come to judge, but willingly to be judged and to identify with those who were up against it. It's also why you cannot, as a follower of Christ, hold grudges. Uh, walk in bitterness. Walk through life backwards. Now, how do you get beyond that? Uh, you, by looking to your Savior, who did not hold grudges. Even though he experienced nothing but injustice. And he willingly allowed himself to be judged to rescue us from our sin. So what I want you to see in this section that when we read it, it appears kind of confusing because first it's Peter, then it's Jesus, and then it's Peter, and then it's Jesus and back and forth, is that Peter is all about self-protection. Jesus, on the other hand, is all about self-surrender. And the question Mark is raising is, what about you? What about you? But it's not a message of be better. What Mark is, is doing is, is letting us know that our tendency is to be just like Peter. But it's in Jesus Christ that we find the power to change. And so if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, uh, boy, hear me in this. Your day of judgment has passed. It's in the past. Do not 
put yourself on trial. Do not allow anyone else to put you on trial. But if you do not know Jesus, if if you haven't come to Jesus, you're not sure where you are with Jesus, man, I want to invite you right now in this moment to come to Jesus and trust him as your Savior and Lord because he died on the cross for you. And where other religions in the world will offer morality and offer experiences, Christianity alone offers forgiveness. And that is our deepest, our most profound need. And that is what is going on here. Now, before I pray, I just want to say the worship team is about to come up. We're going to take the offering. And we're doing this at the end because there are lots of different ways to respond to God's word. And as we worship him, I mean flat out full worship him. And as we give our resources to support the kingdom work of God, it's a couple of ways we can do that. Would you bow with me and let's pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing, this potent story. And we ask that by your grace that you would speak to us. We thank you that we can come to you now and we can worship. We thank you that we can give to you because you have so incredibly given to us in Jesus. God, would you deliver us from spiritual anemia? from keeping a distance from Jesus. For Jesus' sake, amen.